I'd, I'd like to take our prayer this morning from Psalms. Holy One, in your awesome presence, even the sea and the mountains stand back, and the rock pours for, forth pure water to refresh the weary and heavy laden. May we join all creatures, great and small, in all nations, all colors, all creed, in acknowledging the life-giving strength of your love in all things, and treat your creation as the holy ground you intended to be. Be with us this hour, bring your blessing on Phil as he teaches us today, and help us to remember always that you are the creator, the preserver, the healer, and the one who gives us everlasting life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Good morning. see you all here. Wow, I seem just a little hot. Is that better? Yeah, I think that's a little better. Well, it's good to be with you, and I'm grateful for all those of you who uh, traveled over to, to Milligan on Thursday uh, to see... Boyce and Donna and Cooper uh, honored at the Milligan uh, <laughs> Leadership, Servant Leadership uh, Award Ceremony. It was a really nice um, service, I thought. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a Milligan person. I think I would have thought it was a nice person, <laughs> a nice service regardless. But, um, and uh, I had nothing to do with it. So um, I thought the people who, Beth Anderson and her office and other people did a really nice job. So uh, it was good to see. Uh, some folks in our community and in our class uh, honored. For the last several weeks, we've been in uh, sojourning in the gospel for this year, this liturgical year, um, is the gospel of Luke. And um, we're going we're gonna to do that. We're going to stay there for a little while. I can't tell you how long, um, but a while. Uh, there's a lot of Luke. And there's a lot of year. Um, so, um, we're going to, uh, last time, we, we spent several weeks looking at those opening episodes uh, prior to Jesus being born and shortly after his birth, um, where these people, often couples, were interacting with Jesus and, and the sort of hope and the songs that they were sung, that were sung, um, Elizabeth and, and Zachariah, Mary and Joseph, Anna and Simeon. And uh, today uh, we go to what's maybe another familiar passage uh, in, in Luke 4, where we uh, hear Jesus, in, in Luke anyway, uh, Jesus' inaugural sermon. Now, some things have happened. Last week we mentioned, you know, Jesus is is baptized, um, and then he's he goes out into the wilderness and is tempted. 
And we've mentioned last week, and we'll have to say, Luke, one of the things that Luke emphasizes is Jesus as a man of the Spirit, right? He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. Um, he is empowered uh, and anointed uh, by the Spirit at his baptism. You recall uh, in Luke, uh, Luke is... Luke doesn't want you to just think this is something in Jesus' head um, at his baptism. And so Luke actually says that uh, at his baptism that a dove descended in bodily form, right, in, in, the, in the Holy Spirit was upon Jesus. Um, and then Jesus um, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And then in later, that's, this is all in chapter 4, and then begin, we're going to start today in verse 14. Um, Luke continues to talk about Jesus' life being driven by and led by the Spirit. And so we're going to, today we're going to focus on Jesus' first recorded sermon or teaching um, in the Gospel of Luke and the reaction to it. And he has some, we'll see that he has some prophetic words here. And part of our task today is to remind us about the, the dangerous business of being uh, a prophet. Um, as we all know, it's uh, it's the weekend and the celebration of Martin, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, who can be considered a kind of modern-day prophet of sorts. We'll we'll come to that, um, but it's dangerous business. I mean, prophets, as you know, prophets. We sometimes when we think of prophets, we think of prophets as just people who tell the future, um, and that that's a. That's a sort of truncated notion of what it means to be a prophet. Um, certainly there are times when uh, prophets uh, announce things that are to come. This is true. Um, but the primary purpose of a prophet um, is to bring a word of God. Right? Sometimes it's a word of comfort. Uh, sometimes it's a word of judgment. Uh, and so that's, it's, it's God's spokesperson is who a, a prophet is. And it, it can run the whole gamut of what they have to say. Um, but often prophets are known, if you read through the Old Testament, uh, for saying things that people don't really want to hear. Uh, that's why it's dangerous. Um, I don't know how many times in your life you've had to tell somebody something they didn't want to hear. Um, no doubt all of you have. <laughs> it, it's, it's no fun, right? It's no fun to tell somebody uh, something they don't want to hear. And it's particularly challenging in a culture like ours, right? Where um, in a kind of consumer society where most of us have the choice to put ourselves in places where we want to be in only those places, that it's easy to surround yourself with people who say what you want to hear. 
right? I can, I can listen to, to news that I, I pretty much only want to hear. I can surround myself with people that I only want to hear. I can, you know, I was trying to explain to my students this week. We were talking about changing culture over years. It's part of what I do. Um, and I said, you, you can't believe this, but there was a time when if you got into a car, you were lucky if you had an AM radio and it had a few preset stations, like one for country and one for popular music. But you actually had to listen to music that you didn't choose. Right? You, we didn't have the technology to pipe into your head, only the music that you wanted to hear. You had to listen to the music that somebody else was picking. Right? That just sounded really crazy to them. <laughs> like, how did you survive that? Um, right? So, I mean, we live in an age where, uh, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, I can put myself in positions where I can hear largely what I want to hear. And, which makes being a prophet in our age even maybe harder, arguably. Uh, but it's always been hard. It's always been hard. Um, I think about what it means to be a, a pastor in the 21st century in a culture like that, where if you dare tell people things they don't want to hear, well, they just go to another church. Well, I don't need to hear that. Right? Um, so I just want to go where like, people will tickle my ears. It's a kind of biblical image. Right? Um, and so Jesus um, starts off uh, being a pretty popular guy. Uh, but we're going to find out that um, early on, at least as Luke tells it in this first teaching, um, he actually is going to provoke his listeners. And he's going he's to actually embody what Simeon's song that we looked at last week actually talked about. Where you may recall in Simeon's song, after, after the song, and he continues to speak, uh, and he speaks to Mary, says, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many and to be a sign that will be opposed. And so the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And Jesus is going to provoke his listeners today and he's going to reveal some inner thoughts that they don't even maybe know that they have some inner prejudices, some inner, uh, some inner ways of seeing the world that they may not be conscious of and Jesus is going to bring them to light. Um, and that's going to make him a, quite a bit less popular than he is at the beginning of the story. And so, uh, being a prophet, being a truth teller, has always been dangerous. Because uh, if we're honest, if I'm honest, I don't always like to hear the truth. Right? Uh, when people in my family speak the truth to me, I don't always say, oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really needed to hear that word of truth. I will be, you know, a better person for it. No, at least on occasion I get just a teeny tiny bit defensive. 
right. Um, so that's where we are today. Um, and so we want to we want to try to be truthful about ourselves today. Um, how willing am I to hear the truth? The truth about what God is doing in the world, uh, the truth about how God has called us to be part of that in the world, uh, and the truth that I am often um, complacent, um, often passive, uh, often indifferent uh, to what God would call us to do as the people of God. So let's look at this passage, and we'll kind of walk our way through it. There's, it's, again, a familiar passage, but there are some surprises in it. Um, starting at verse 14, this is in chapter 4 of Luke. And this is right after the temptation, um, where it just says, Then the devil had finished every test. He departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, there it is again, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. So he returned to Galilee, and, this, and so we don't know, Luke doesn't tell us, any of that, what he was doing there, uh, and why people praised him. But then, Luke goes on to say, and when he came to Nazareth, hometown boy, right? When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Good Jewish boy, right? Have to remember, it's hard to remember, looking back 2,000 years, Jesus is not a Christian yet. <laughs> he's still Jew. Right? He's a good, he's not a Jewish Christian, he's just a Jew. Right? Uh, Jesus doesn't get to be a Christian. He gets to be a Jew. He's going to die as a Jew. Right? Um, it's, it's easy to forget Jesus' Jewishness. And so, of course, he went to the Sabbath day as was his custom. But it seems like his custom isn't just to go, but his seems like his custom is to teach while he's in the synagogue, right? Because that's what it's set up above, that uh, he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. So apparently what he's praised by is his teaching in the synagogue. So he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now again, this is easy to forget. Nazareth is a really, really small town. Best we can tell uh, from archaeological evidence is it's like probably 400 people. So it's a teeny tiny town. Um, they didn't have paved roads. Um, we don't have any uh, like real pottery or anything. They don't, they're just, it was like nothing, Zill. And so that's where he is. And so it's, it's a little surprising that the, I mean, they probably, they may have only had one scroll. They, they certainly were poor enough that they didn't like have the whole Hebrew scriptures on scrolls. They may have just had one scroll. Okay. Um, it wasn't easy to have a scroll. And so he's got 
they've got one and he takes the one that's handed to him. It's the Isaiah scroll, okay. the Hebrew prophet Isaiah. And it says he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We've noted this before, but in the synagogue, the tradition was you sit up to read the scripture and then the teacher sits down. I love that. <laughs> the teacher sits down to teach. Um, and my hunch is they were maybe expecting a little bit more teaching than just this pronouncement. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That, that's a huge claim that Jesus is making there. That this is happening in and through him. The good news is being brought to the poor. Proclaiming release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind letting the oppressed go free, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, the Lord's grace, the Lord's graciousness. What's their initial reaction? All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? It's like, that's our boy. Right? I don't think, I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to, uh, the text doesn't tell us how to inflect it, right? Um, I think there are times in the past when I've, I've, I've thought of this maybe as being like derisive, but it's not, it's like they're claiming him as, I think they're claiming him as their own. It's like, this is our, our boy, right? And think about it, if this is true, <coughs> If somehow God's gracious words through Isaiah are coming to pass through our hometown boy, and if it's true that what we've heard, that when he's been other places, um, he's been not just teaching, but maybe working wonders, healing people, like... We're golden. Like, it's, it's our boy. Just think what he's going to do for us. He's going to bring all the goodies home to Nazareth. 
got people here who no doubt could use his healing. We've got no doubt that, um, I mean, I've, I've got a son for sure who needs a demon driven out. <laughs> this is Joseph's son. Jesus says to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Dr. Cure Yourself. Now, most of us don't know that proverb. Uh, I didn't hear that one growing up. And again, apparently in, in uh, Hebrew culture, this, this proverb can be taken several different ways. Um, and the way that it probably fits best in this text, analogous would be uh, in our day, uh, charity starts at home. Right? Ever heard that? Charity starts at home. Like, fine to go all do that stuff out there, but like, take care of what's right here first. So, doctor, heal yourself. Like, stay close to home. So, there, and he's saying, you know, you're likely going to quote me this proverb. Like, heal yourself. Charity begins at home. Like, you're our guy. Be our advocate. Right? Do your powerful work here, doctor. And you will say to me, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you do at Capernaum. Right? So do here what you've been doing. Heal yourself. Charity begins at home. I don't know why you started out there, but that's okay. You're here now. Let's see what you can do. So now here's where Jesus tells the truth about what God has done in the past and what God is doing in his mission. And it's a little provocative. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in, his, in the prophet's hometown. The thing that's easy to miss there is Jesus is all but claiming to be a prophet. Right? Why would, why would Jesus say that if he wasn't at least claiming to be minimally a prophet, one who speaks the word of God? Okay. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, do you want to hear the truth? <laughs> the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah. This is a long time ago. There were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, a prophet, okay, one of the early prophets. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and that phrase, the heavens were shut up, um, 
in the Old Testament. This is when God was rebuking the people of Israel for their disobedience and shuts the heavens up as a way of getting their attention. Seems to work sometimes, right? When it doesn't rain for three and a half years. Yeah. Bad things happen when it doesn't rain for three and a half years. There were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, none of those widows in Israel, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. That's a Gentile. There was all these widows in Israel. Okay? All these widows in Israel who were no doubt suffering horribly during this three and a half year famine. And Elijah the prophet was sent to none of them. You remember the story of Elijah where he goes and he shows up and um, he asks uh, they, he's welcomed by this widow and asks if he can have something to eat and it's like well we're on we're down to our last meal and Elijah sojourns with them and it turns out that in this miraculous way of the, that the food and the oil miraculously are multiplied enough to where they, they are sustained, but they live together, interestingly enough, Jew and Gentile. Right. That's the truth, Jesus says. Uh, all those other widows, who no doubt were needy, okay? Jesus not minimizing that, but Elijah was sent to this Gentile woman in Sidon. There were also, he goes on, verse 27, there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, another prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. Remember the story of Naaman? who had kind of leprosy and Elisha comes and tells him if he wants to be cleansed to go wash in the in the river. He's like, I'm not going in that nasty river. That's disgusting. Right. But he finally does and and he's cleansed. But there were many lepers, including presumably many Jewish lepers in the time of Elisha. But none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, Jesus is telling familiar stories. He's not telling you all the stuff that I just told you because they knew these stories. Okay. Um, he says like two sentences, but it gets reaction. What's the reaction? When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up 
drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Sounds like the first sermon didn't go so well <laughs> in Nazareth. Right. As far as we know, Jesus never taught again in Nazareth. We don't have any record of him teaching again in Nazareth. Can't blame him for not going back. Right. But everyone was all excited. When Jesus, the hometown boy, the one whose fame has preceded him before he ever gets to know, everyone's excited that he's come back home because he's one of ours. He surely has all this stuff for us. He's going to put us on the map. Well, he did. I mean, you've heard of Nazareth. 2,000 years later, no one really heard of it then. So he did put them on the map, but not for the reason they hoped. Luke is very clear from the beginning of his gospel that this God with us, this God that's coming to earth, this God's mercy is wide. Wider than any of us truly want it to be. That's the hard truth. I, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm truthful on too many days, I, I want God's mercy to be wide enough to reach me. but maybe not a whole lot further than that. Maybe you too. I want it to reach you too. Because you're a good folk. Right? But imagine the shock. I mean, this, you know, Luke has already quoted early on Isaiah that, that this incarnate son is going to be a light to the Gentiles. That's, oh, that has already been voiced in the earlier chapters. Right. Uh, and that had been voiced generations before through Isaiah that Israel would be a light to the nations. That it would move beyond the Jews. And so Jesus is saying very clearly that his mission, that God has come in the flesh, not simply so that that mercy might be extended yet again to Israel, but that it move out to the Gentiles, just like it did in the days of Elijah and Elisha. 
God's mercy is wide. And that hard truth is often hard to hear when I want God's mercy primarily for me, which is what they wanted. They wanted God's mercy, God's grace, God's healing power for them. And that just about got Jesus killed after his very first sermon. Okay. That's rough. Probably don't put that on your resume. Right? Preached several places. Got kicked out of town in my hometown. Not only got to get kicked out, I got I got hurled. They were getting ready to hurl me off the cliff and wait. The practice of the day, of course, after that, is that they would have stoned him to death for being a false prophet. Because they wanted him to be a false prophet. Right? They did not want this to be a truth. I mean, the, the danger in, in the Old Testament, a false prophet was supposed to be stoned. And you knew a false prophet is when what they said didn't come to pass. Or they, they said something that was not the true word of God. That's a dangerous vocation. <coughs> right? And so, yeah. They didn't want to hear this truth. And they wanted one way of reacting to that was saying, this is a false prophet. Um, being a prophet, telling the truth, is not popular. As we think about uh, prophets in our own day, some of you know that uh, Jason Pembury just recently published uh, a new book called Walking in the Prophetic Tradition, Models of Speaking Truth and Acting in Love for Everyday People, in which he talks about the Old Testament prophets as truth-tellers, um, and also tries to talk about some modern-day prophets in our own day in the last generation, just to remind us that, not to say that they're identical to biblical prophets, but to say that there are still people of God who try to speak the truth in our day, and that it's still dangerous business. And uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is one of the six or seven examples that he uses in his book. It's hard, it's hard to remember, but most of you are, uh, are mature enough to remember because you lived through these days. Um, when you think, I mean, when you do surveys today um, and you ask people how much they respect and appreciate the legacy of uh, Dr. King, um, it's, it's typically upwards of 90% in American society today. Um, what's hard to remember is towards the end of King's life when he was most prophetic this is in the year say six, in the last year of his life 1967 to 68 before he was assassinated this is after uh, the Voting Rights Act right um, after all of that 
Um, when he when he began particularly to try to talk not just about civil rights, this after the Civil Rights Act, after the Voting Rights Act, he began to try to say some things that he felt like he always should say, um, but he knew it was gonna be hard to say, and that was to also talk about the war, also talk about poverty, and to show how those were actually connected to civil rights and racism. And so when he died, his, his, we have statistics on this, his approval rating was 25%. Right? 75%, I mean, that's, we don't have anybody else right around except maybe Congress right now, um, who's that low. Right? Um, but that's 75% of people vehemently disagreed with what he was doing. And it's sort of easy to sort of domesticate and, uh, yeah, domesticate maybe is the right word, the, the heritage of King uh, to make him out to be just someone who, um, you know, was just going around telling everybody to love and be unified. And, and he did that, of course, and his methods were nonviolent. Um, that's one of the things that people got upset with him, even in, uh, in the African-American community. Um, he didn't just teach about nonviolence. You probably know that they had intensive training for people who were going to be involved in marches and protests. They had to go through extensive training in nonviolence about how to react when people provoke you so that you not be provoked to violence yourself. I mean, they, they took that very seriously. But people were impatient, right? And King, it was hard. People didn't like what he was saying. And then in April of 67, um, he delivered um, a sermon at Riverside Church in New York that a lot of you probably have never heard of because it's not it's never going to be as popular you know it's come Martin Luther King Day when we hear the I have a dream speech for the 700th time you're, you're never going to hear this this these other words because they they don't lift the spirit in the same kind of way they're prophetic and they're hard but he believed they were the truth so I thought I'd read you to close, just a couple paragraphs. It's hard to hear. Um, I'm not going to try to make it less hard to hear because that wouldn't be truthful, right? And I'm not saying that this is the only truth that should have been spoken at that point. I'm not saying he has everything right. I'm just saying he believed this was the truth he was called to say in his day, as a minister of the gospel, right? He's preaching this. He's not out on the streets. He's preaching this. Right? He was a Christian pastor, and he believed all of this was animated by his call as a follower of Jesus. So he has, he's begun to talk about the connection between 
the war and militarism and poverty and racism. He's beginning to talk about those three things are connected. And people have asked him, and this sermon is a response like, why are you doing that? We thought you were a civil rights leader. You're, you're just making, you're making the whole thing harder. And his first reason, I won't read that because I don't want to like read all morning. His first reason, he says, is because we had all these great hopes that we began some programs, right? The Johnson administration has begun some programs and we're going to try to address the poverty in this country and now all of the financial resources are being siphoned off into the war. And so the hopes of the poor are being dashed. Then he goes on to say his second reason, perhaps a more tragic, and again, I'm not going to pretend to be Dr. King. He was preaching this. I can send you the link if you want to hear it. Um, I'm just going to read it. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die and in extraordinarily higher proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. And so we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to see them together in the same schools. We watched them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realized that they would never live on the same block in Detroit. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, but it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers. And here you have to know there were a couple of times when King led a protest that turned violent, right? And he was really upset about this because this is not what he wanted, but people were getting impatient. And this happened. And as I've walked among the desperate, rejected, angry young men, I've told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I've tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems to bring about the changes it wanted. Their question hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. 
And that's hard to hear, right, over 50 years later. Um, and King, you know, paid for it with his life, right, a year later. When he was in Memphis, as you know, um, working with sanitation workers uh, in Memphis, who he believed were uh, being treated unfairly in their workplace. Um, speaking the truth is dangerous, um, and particularly when human beings, myself included, have a penchant um, not to want to hear the truth way too many times. And as long as that's the case, speaking the truth will always be dangerous. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have told us that Jesus is himself the truth. And yet we confess we often don't want to hear the truth, don't want to hear the words of Jesus, which continue to ring in our ears, don't want to hear the truth of what you are doing in the world, don't want to hear how wide your mercy is, don't want to hear about the blind spots in our lives. And so we pray that your spirit might be upon us as it was on Jesus, and that we might this week and the weeks ahead become more and more lovers of the truth. We pray this through the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ. Bill. I had just moved to Memphis um, shortly before that mm. and was working uh, as a nurse in the hospital there and I remember the curfews. I remember a lot of it. Mm. And he was labeled as nothing but a troublemaker. And the entire city was against it. Yeah. Memphis has always been very severely racially divided, and mm -hmm. it is to this day. It is. Right. <clears throat> Thank you, Linda. Appreciate that.